Welcome to the Institute of Catholic Culture, a nonprofit Catholic organization dedicated to the re-evangelization of our society through educational and cultural programs offered to the public at no charge. This and other presentations, hundreds of hours of audio, are available for free on our website, www.instituteofcatholicculture.org. There you can listen to or download educational programs related to all aspects of our divine faith, and you can review our schedule of upcoming events. We hope you can join us in person. The handout reference during this presentation is available for download on the audio section of our website. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Heavenly King, Consoler, Spirit of Truth, present in all places and filling all things, the treasury of blessings and the giver of life. Come and dwell within us, cleanse us of all stain, and save our souls, O good one. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Welcome back, Dr. Marshner. Well, thank you. It's great to be here. By the way, I haven't heard anything about um, the availability to you folks of the text of the syllabus. I'm sorry, I didn't make any announcements, but it was, they had it last week, Dr. Marshner, and we're posting it right now in the chat box. And I think Kelsey already posted it there, but it's being posted right now in the chat box. You can click on it and have it available to you. I will tell you, Dr. Marshner, that this text is in English. Sorry about that, that it's not in Latin for them. I'm not surprised. In (laughs) any case, if you want uh, a text, just the propositions condemned, but after each proposition, the source whence it is taken, the encyclical or allocution. I have prepared that. Wonderful. We're going to get it to him in the post-event email. And go ahead. Interesting thing about these various documents. I don't know about most interesting intrinsically, but to me, the most interesting thing is the dates on them. They're dated to September, December, June, July, August. In other words... Think of every one of those dates as a reason to have a party. Celebrate every condemnation in the 19th century, and you will be a happy person. All right. I want to go back very quickly to proposition number five, which I covered last time, which says divine revelation is incomplete and hence subject to a continual and indefinite progress in keeping with the development of human reason. Now, that proposition will become, in uh, 40 years' time, the key claim of modernism, okay? Which is why it is especially interesting that that proposition was taken up at Vatican Council I and reworded slightly into uh, an infallible canon at Vatican I. It's in in the Denzinger volume, it's number 3043, 3043. I call it the great metadogma because it's a dogma about dogmas. It says that they can't change in their meaning through the alleged progress of human knowledge, science, whatever, okay? So it's, it, it was a hammer blow delivered 40 years early to the hopes of the modernists. 
Now, last time, it seems to me, we got through Proposition 14. Am I right about that? I do believe so, Dr. Marshner. Very good. Then we're ready to change course. So far, we've been talking about uh, faith and philosophy and dogma and reason and so on. And now we're switching to a different topic. Indifferentism and latitudinarianism is the subheading in the Summa. Proposition 15 says, it is up to the free decision of each person to embrace and profess the religion he deems true on the basis of the light of reason. What's the matter with that? Certainly, every person has the freedom to embrace and profess the true faith. And those who don't have the correct information probably embrace some other faith. But um, here is a condemned proposition. It is up to the free discretion of each person, okay, to embrace and profess what he means on the basis of the light of reason. Now, there is a key phrase, okay? We all use our heads, of course, in coming to conversion. But at a certain point in the genuine conversion, we turn from the authority of our own thinking, quote-unquote, to the authority of God. The reason I believe the dogmas of the church is not because, gee, they make sense to me, but because I believe God sent them. Yes. So at some point, it's not just following the light of reason. Anyway, this proposition was taken from a book published in Peru, of all places, in Lima, Peru, in 1851. A father, Gonzalez Vigil, put out a book on church and state affairs in which he made this, this claim. And I think that there's also something to be criticized in the wording, it's up to the free discretion of each person. Okay. Yeah, I mean, in the last analysis, you do have to choose for yourself. Yeah. But that doesn't mean uh, that I can consider myself seated in front of a great smorgasbord of religions, and then I just look at what looks appetizing to me. That approach won't do. Okay, let's look at number 16. The condemned proposition says, men can find the path to eternal salvation and get there in the practice of any religion at all. One can find, men, people can find the path to eternal salvation and attain it in the practice of any religion at all. Okay. Now then, this is from the encyclical Qui Pluribus, put forth on November the 9th, 1846. And it was the same Pope, Pius the Ninth in that same encyclical, who mentioned the traditional teaching about invincible ignorance, okay? People who don't have the information, 
that comes from divine revelation will have to follow their own sense of the good and the true as best they can. And in extraordinary circumstances, can indeed find salvation if they do so. What you never hear anymore is the rest of that doctrine, namely that, yeah, but that road is tough. Okay. That is really hard because you are continually solicited by false ideas and by your own passions without a strong and authoritative and reliable teacher, you go astray, okay? Our Lord said, narrow is the gate, straight the way that leads to salvation. Few there be who find it, okay? He didn't say, few there be who look, or few there be who are sincere, but few there be who find it, okay? Straight is the gate and narrow is the way. And for most of us, of course, the obstacles are our own sins and passions, including our egos and our pride. Okay, so the church has long taught, uh, long before qui pluribus, for example, long taught that the situation of invincible ignorance creates a problem where the individual is under the providence of God to be brought somehow to a position of salvation. But you, but you can't say people can find the path and attain salvation in the practice of any religion at all. Ah, watch that last phrase. Okay. If you are going to be saved despite having been born in outer Mongolia and never heard anything very true. It is not going to be by practicing your local religion. You're going to have to reject it. You're going to have to say the religious ideas that I've been surrounded with are barbarous, wicked, base doctrines. And I don't want anything to do with that. Remember the um, those wonderful Jesuits who came to the North America, the North American Indian missions, like Father Isaac Jogue and so on. They report having found here and there one or two American Indians who welcomed them and said, we always thought something like this must be true because we have nothing to do with the customs of our tribe. They're baloney. They're gross. Yes. That's the kind of an odd duck you're looking for. If you're going to find somebody saved despite invincible ignorance. Does everybody get the picture? It's a beautiful doctrine. And um, in the practice of any religion at all is a false and misleading addition. Okay. Oh, number 17 reminds me of Hans Urs von Balthasar. Here's number 17. At least one ought to have good hope of eternal salvation for all those who do not live in the bosom of the true church of Christ. Ah, that's kind of hard to disagree with, isn't it? 
von Balthasar thought it would be impossible to disagree. He said, well, we have to have hope. We have to have hope. Yeah, okay. But hope is only rational if it's realistic. And notice, please, the hope that you, can, that you allegedly can have for the salvation of those not in the bosom of the true church, that hope is not an exercise of the theological virtue of hope. Watch it. The theological virtue of hope is placing your hope, reliance, and so on in God's promises that God will do as he has promised and that he will provide the graces for you to finish the good work which he has begun in you. Yes, that's theological hope. Hoping about, ah, gee, all poor people in um, uh, Mongolia. I'm sorry to pick on Mongolia. Pick another country. All those poor people in Timbuktu. Yeah, because that's in Muslim hands. Yeah, it would be nice if you can say, I hope whenever I think something would be nice. Yeah, it would be nice if they all got saved. But it's an irrational hope unless there's some foundation for it. Okay. Okay. Um, uh, I'll get in trouble for this. But look, if we sent in a crusader army and took over Timbuktu, the chances of those people being converted and coming into the bosom of the true church would be a whole lot better. Not certain, but the chances would be improved. There were more converts to Catholicism in Algeria when the French were there as the government, despite the fact that the French were also resented for being there. Still, okay, exposure to Christianity raises the hope. Non-exposure as good as quenches the hope. All right. So one ought to have good hope. No, not beyond reason. Okay. How do you like number 18? Protestantism is just a different form of the same true Christian religion, a form in which one can be just as pleasing to God as in the Catholic Church. Oh, boy. Oh, boy. Now, separate two ideas in that. It's a different form of the same true Christian religion. Well, in that case, the Christian religion contains contradictions. Okay. So we got a form of faith that says yes and a form that says no? I don't think so. Doctrinally, it's impossible for Protestantism to be a form of the true Christian religion because of our many doctrinal quarrels. So that much is clear. The rest of the thing says a form in which one can, one can be just as pleasing to God as in the Catholic Church. All right. That's a little bit more delicate, and it's a lot more plausible. Yes, you can be pleasing to God long before you are a Catholic. Look at Cardinal Newman in the course of his early life. 
taking care never to betray the light, as he put it. So one can be following the graces of God while one is still far from the Catholic homeland. This is true. But you will find out if you continue to follow the grace of God that you can't be just as pleasing to God if you stay where you are. Okay. When the moment of realization comes to you that the sect in which you were born and raised, despite its many merits, is not the true church of Christ, then you have a duty to get out of it. Otherwise, you are no longer pleasing to God. All right. Any questions about number 18? Seeing none. We move on to Roman numeral four, socialism, communism, secret societies, Bible societies, clerical liberal societies. Here we don't get propositions, just a general statement. Plagues of these kinds have been struck with formulation, condemnations formulated in highly severe terms in the encyclical Qui Pluribus, 1846 and the allocution quibus quantisque of 1849, etc., says the text. So he's not going to go back over uh, socialism, communism. Secret societies were condemned, of course, because they were largely revolutionary societies, Masonic plotters in revolutionary societies, Um, Bible societies. Well, what's the matter with that? You don't want to give out the Bible. You can't condemn that, can you? Yeah, we can. Because handing out the scriptures without note or comment to people with no education to read and understand a text that old is not a service. Not a service. Okay. It's fine to make sure that everybody knows, you know, some really great, very clear verses, okay? God so loved the world, etc. But you don't want to just start handing out Bibles because then you get disasters. The, the person uh, reads the scripture as best he or she can, and that may be pretty bad. I never cease being amazed how stupid people can be when they start talking about the literal sense of the Bible. I take every word in the Bible literally. Do. So God is a large chunk of mineral. The Lord is my rock. Eh? Got that literally, you think? People have to be able to deal with metaphor. And uh, if they can't, they they don't belong having Bibles in their hands, frankly. All right. I'm now at number 19, which is an extremely important proposition. I'll read it, and then I'll tell you why it's so important. The church is not a true and perfect society that's fully free. She does not enjoy her own proper and constant rights conferred upon her by her divine founder. It belongs rather to the civil power 
to define what the rights of the church are and the limits within which she may exercise them. Okay. Now we're going to have a lot more propositions that go into details about governments trying to limit the vital activities of Holy Church. The reason all of those finer details are condemned is because this one, number 19, is condemned. It says the church is not a true and perfect society. Well, what's the matter with that? It's, it, it, it's not a perfect society. It's got people in it. I know, I know. But watch out. This is, this is ancient English. The word perfect in this canon means complete. That's all. The doctrine is that the church is a true society and a complete society. Complete societies were defined as opposed to obviously incomplete ones, like provinces within a larger country, cities and towns within an independent state, and so on. So local societies, parts of societies, those are not complete societies, right? Aristotle discusses this at length in the politics. Well, here the assertion is made the church is a complete society, right? Not That means not part of another society and not taking her directions from the boss of any other society. That's the key thing. Interestingly enough, when the first Vatican Council was called, the bishops expected to define as a dogma the proposition that the church is a complete society, societas perfecta, complete society. Didn't happen. Didn't happen because there were too many more basic important things to say about the church. That is the mystical body and that it's supernatural in its nature and so on. Those important things really had to be taught. This Proposition 19, however, is the first principle of Catholic teaching about church and state. When it comes to the church's relations to the state, number 19 is the basic principle. So mark it well. And it was asserted by the church as early as, by the Pope as early as 1856. But it's been in works of theology since the Middle Ages. Okay. A complete society. She does enjoy her own proper and constant rights conferred upon her by her divine founder. Okay. And like any other complete society, she has, in fact, or by right, the resources she needs to carry out her mission. Okay. A complete society is like that of a an independent state, for example. A state is supposed to have the means to defend itself. And it will have the means to defend itself unless it's, um, I don't know, taxed to death for some other purpose. But it, it belongs to the right and duty of a national state to defend its frontiers 
against foreign invaders and so on, enemy states. And the church, in her own way, has by right, or in fact, everything she needs to carry out her mission. All right. Now, I'm not going to give, I'm not going to follow the temptation to launch out in a lecture on ecclesiology here. You all know, I think, what the mission of the church is, what goal she was created to pursue. Whatever it takes to pursue that goal, the church has the means to do. Like, for example, to save my wretched soul. She had the water of baptism. Bingo. Could be done. Ditto for you. Preaching the gospel. Ditto for all of us. All right. Now then, getting down into details, the errors in conflict with number 19. Look at number 20. Oh, how do you like this? Ecclesiastical power should not exercise its authority without the leave and consent of the civil government. Without the leave and consent of the civil government. Does that remind anyone of communist China? Yeah. Now, communist China didn't exist in uh, 1861 when this proposition was condemned in the allocution Memenit Unus Quisque. Each of us remembers 1861. No communist China, but from one end of Europe to another, to the other, there were these classical liberal governments. Well, classical liberalism is not supposed to be a totalitarian ideology. We expect proposition number 20 to be about a totalitarian society. Not going to let anybody communicate with the citizens except we, the the all-doing, all-knowing all-caring, all-feeling government. Classical liberalism is not totalitarian anymore. Oh, but it was. That's what a lot of people don't know. And the reason why they don't um, think of the, the syllabus as any longer relevant. And in any case, it wasn't only classical liberalism that said the state had the right to uh, stop the church from exercising his authority. Or the church couldn't do anything without the leave and permission of the civil government. It wasn't only the classical liberals. You know who else this proposition should remind you of? I'm sorry to say this. It should remind you of Louis the Fourteenth and Louis the Eighteenth. The Bourbons got kicked out of power in um, the French Revolution. But it was said about the House of Bourbon that they never learned anything and never forgot anything. Well, that was certainly true of Louis XVIII, who restored to the throne of France, brings back all of the mistaken policies that had been in exercise under Louis XIV. The Gallican Articles. Eh, Someday maybe they'll invite me to give a talk here about the Gallican Articles. Or somebody else will do it for you. You'll know all about them. But they gave the right uh, to the king to publish, to prevent the publication of any encyclical. Okay. And that was held 
as correct by the high royalist bishops of France. Sad. All right. Number 21 should get your juices going. The church does not have the power to define dogmatically that the religion of the Catholic Church is the sole true religion. Why not? I mean, after all, we don't get our dogmatic ideas from ourselves, but from a certain chap who founded our church and who told us, you know what? I am the way and the truth and the life. I am the gateway. No one comes to the Father but by me. In other words, the claims for the exclusive authority and uh, truth of the Catholic Church come from her founder, not from papal arrogance. All right. Number 22. This is a goodie. The obligation that rests upon Catholic teachers and writers is limited to things that have been defined by the church's infallible judgment, such as the dogmas of faith which must be believed by all. Okay. Today, I think we would be delighted if Catholic teachers and writers did at least accept and defend the dogmas of the faith. Ah, we would think a dream had come true. Imagine no more heretic CCD teachers. Imagine the liberal nuns chased out of the parochial school. Ah, imagine paradise. But the point of this condemnation was that, no, come on, if you're a teacher and a writer in the Catholic world, you have extra duties beyond just you know, not tripping over the dogmas, not denying the dogmas. Every every layman has that duty. But you also have the duty to lead people prudently and convince people to follow the initiatives of the church where she has not made a definition yet. All right. Number 23. The sovereign pontiffs and ecumenical councils have transgressed the limits of their power. They have usurped the rights of princes and have erred even in definitions touching upon faith and morals. Now leave out that last bit because that'll be condemned at Vatican I. But the popes and councils have transgressed the limits of their power. Why, they've usurped the rights of princes? Oh, putting out an encyclical against birth control? Is that uh, usurping the rights of princes? Well, it's usurping perhaps the the, uh, unjust powers of the red Chinese government, but not otherwise. And those people are not princes by any means. All right, now I move on quickly. Number 24. The church has no right to use force. She has no temporal power, direct or indirect. Um, I suspect most people would be surprised to hear that that's condemned. Don't we all think that the church has no right to use force? Uh-huh. Well, think again. The church has a right to all the means necessary to carry out her mission. 
And if that means arresting false teachers or otherwise punishing them, she may do so. Okay. Now, I want to get you off on too many tangents here. Someday we'll have a whole lecture about the burning of heretics at the stake, uh, a practice I'm generally loath to praise. However, the church does have the right to use force. And um, you can see where I'm going with that if you will skip ahead right quick to proposition number 31. Okay? This is condemned. Number 31. Ecclesiastical courts for trying clerics on temporal charges, whether civil or criminal ought to be abolished absolutely, even without consulting the apostolic see and without paying attention to its protests. Okay? I'll leave off the, the, the impoliteness implied in the end there. We're not even can concentrate ecclesiastical courts for trying clerics on temporal charges, whether civil or criminal, should be abolished absolutely, said these 19th century liberals and others. All right. Some people don't know the church ever had such courts, but she certainly did. Canon law did not used to be only about marriage validity cases. There were also canonical punishments designed for priests who filched from the poor box, priests with light fingers, priests who got arrested for ship, uh, should have been arrested anyway, for shoplifting. And oh, now, don't we have the problem of priests guilty of crimes of a temporal nature because they have abused the trust of children okay we have the clerical the the scandals about the sexual abuse of minors now i'm very sorry that we don't have any longer church prisons in which we could throw those guys i would like it if priests accused of the sexual crimes could first be charged and tried in an ecclesiastical court, and then, when found guilty, handed over to the temporal arm. That way, at least the church wouldn't have to pay for the prisons. But we would be exercising our right to police our own personnel. You cannot have a true society that can't or won't police its own personnel. Am I right about that? Of course. It was um, with some hesitation. 10 years ago now, maybe almost 15 years ago now, when a friend of mine brought my attention to the uh, clerical sex abuse scandals uh, in New England and was advocating that these priests just be handed over to the civil law. 
that the church stopped hiding them in uh, counseling centers or something, much less just transferring the creeps to another diocese. They ought to be handed over to the civil law right away, said my friend in those days. Pope Francis finally agrees, or so it would seem. Yeah, we don't have a choice anymore because we do not have our own institutions of correction. Alas, okay. How do you like number 26? The church does not have the natural and legitimate right to acquire and possess property. Okay. Once again, this was classical liberal stuff trying to prevent the church from having any assets with which to fight the liberal governments of 150 years ago. Okay. When the church has no assets, she can't fight very well. This is true. Okay. And so we have always understood in the American church our need to keep hold of our assets. Well, now, of course, our assets are being ripped away from us in settling lawsuits brought about by the coddling of pervert priests. A terrible situation. But we certainly need uh, property. And I don't just mean Episcopal palaces. I mean also uh, the property on which the church stands and the property of uh, religious orders and so on. Number 28. Bishops are not even permitted to publish apostolic letters without government leave. There you go. Hello, communist China. Right? Well, hello, the France of Louis Fourteenth. Alas, and hello, the kingdom of Piedmont in the time of Pius IX. All right, I'm going to skip 32. I'm going to go to 33. By no intrinsic or natural right does the regulation of theological instruction belong to ecclesiastical jurisdiction alone. Once again, one thinks communist China. When it gets the, the, the communist ideology into the seminaries, whatever. But um, no, this was in the 19th century. How about 34? The doctrine of those who compare the Roman pontiff to a free prince exercising his power in the universal church is merely one that prevailed in the Middle Ages. Okay? It's historically false, and it undermines the true character of the church, of the, of the Pope's jurisdiction as first among the apostles. Oh, 35, there's nothing to prevent a decree of a general council or an act of all the peoples from transferring the sovereign pontificate from the Roman bishopric and the city of Rome to another bishopric and city. Oh, really? Did anybody seriously maintain this? Sure. Philip the Fair maintained it. He dragged the papal court kicking and screaming from Rome to Avignon. If you're going to operate, you bad church types, if you're going to operate, you're going to operate on my soil, under my supervision, said Philip the Fair. Now that goes back away. I'm going to jump to number 38. Too many arbitrary acts 
on the part of the Roman pontiffs is what forced the division of the church into east and west. Okay. When in doubt, blame the church of Rome. In fact, the schism uh, between east and west had many complicated causes and um, it is certainly not fair to say that the activities of the Holy See were a main cause. All right, now I'm almost out of time here. I see certain watchers and holy ones cropping up on the screen. Never mind. I'm going to do 39 anyway. I want you to pay attention to this. Since the state is the origin and source of all rights, the right which the state itself enjoys is not circumscribed by any limit. There is the claim that all rights come from the government. Basic claim of legal positivism, a basic claim of many forms of secularism. Well, it was Hitler's idea, too. And, of course, it's the idea of the communist and other totalitarian states. And I can't stop. Oh, I just can't stop. Number 40 is unmissable. Unmissable. The doctrine of the Catholic Church is contrary to the well-being and the interests of human society. Huh? There it is. You could extract that. You could extract that probably practically word for word from the Democratic Party platform these days. Am I right? The entire American left profoundly believes that the doctrine of the Catholic Church is contrary to the well-being and interests of human society. All right. And um, that brings me to number 47. Since the Catholic Church is so dangerous to the public wheel, look at number 47. The sound constitution of civil society demands that schools having a popular character open to all children of any social class, as well as public institutions in general, devoted to literature, advanced studies, higher education of youth, be exempted from all church authority, regulation, or intervention, and that they be fully submitted to the will of the civil and political authority in accordance with the desire of modern governments and the general current of modern opinion. Okay, how do you like that? We have seen the results of shutting the authority of the church out of public schools. Okay, we have seen it. And the result is a flat out anarchy. I'm gonna read you here a quote. Our own schools today are seedbeds of socialism, opposition to military service, and anti-patriotism, unquote. I got that quote from a paper published in 1906. How absolutely true it is of today's college campuses, not to mention high schools and whatever. And of course, uh, you know, um, American liberalism is regaining the totalitarian ambitions of 19th century liberalism, okay? 
how long is it going to be before Catholic schools are forced to introduce gender-free bathrooms? Okay. How many genders are there? Are we up to 37 genders now? Imagine that. 37 bathrooms, one for each fictitious gender. Oh, geez. But it could easily happen. Yes. And you can see the public school teachers lobbying for this. And the, the liberals crying their eyes out. Oh, the poor LBGT and Q children are just, they're going to be all offended and they're not going to feel affirmed and whatnot if, if, they're, if, if they're allowed to go to these schools run by the church. So we ought to close them. Close them. You know what I mean? You can hear this already. The climate in which the church has to operate in America in 2019 is the result of the Catholic bishops in this country giving up their political power. Okay, They gave it up in the aftermath of Vatican II. Oh, we don't need that anymore. The church and the world are friends now. <laughs> well, I think I've raged on long enough. It's time to shut me down and open up to questions. Thank you, Dr. Marshner. Really a wonderful guided tour through, through the syllabus of errors. We got uh, Steve saying, regarding handing out Bibles without instruction, are we not giving the Holy Spirit any credit? Also, many people, it seems, who have been brought up in the church do not know any more than some people were just handed Bibles without instruction. That's not true at the Institute, by the way, but okay. And then uh, Judy says, Dr. Marshall, when you say people should not be given Bibles without commentaries or something, what about a group called Voice of the Martyrs, which gets Bibles to people in countries where God is not allowed in some cases? They go to great efforts to provide basic needs in packs, which contain Bibles in their languages. What do you think of that, Dr. Marshall? It is in part a very worthy enterprise, getting Bibles into Muslim countries, for example. That much is good. But the Bibles should have some footnotes to help people understand difficult passages. Uh, if you make a, it, it, the Bible wouldn't have to be significantly longer. With a few footnotes that will give people a clue to the patristic exegesis of difficult passages, uh, we have no objection to it. We're not against handing out Bibles. We're against handing them out without note or comment. Oh, I mean, you do what you can. Let's put it that way. I think we had a good example in the Ethiopian eunuch, do we not? You know, is it, how am I supposed to understand Isaiah unless somebody teaches me? All right. Am I right, Dr. Marshner? That's right. Dino, take yourself off of mute. You got a question you wanted to post to the good doctor here. Okay. Hey, doctor. Thanks for, thanks for everything. It's great. How can the government ever, ever, you know, there's multiple definitions of words. So just because they've redefined marriage civilly, 
the church will always have their definition of marriage. And so this is the thing I've, I've, I've never been too upset about it. Although many Catholics get upset. They say they're redefining it. It's going to change it. We have a definition of marriage. They have a definition of marriage. We have freedom of religion in this country. It's an amendment for goodness sakes. And we don't have to be required to abide by a civil law in our church because of that. And if we have to go to the, I mean, I just can't see how that could ever happen, although I may be a Pollyanna here. And the same thing with this gender equity. How can they tell us what to do in our schools when it's a, a private Catholic school and then threaten us with um, redistribution of tax funds? Well, you're calling yourself a Catholic school. You're taking money. Uh, you get tax exempt status. You don't get the, you don't get the redistribution of funds in your because we're all taxpayers. Uh, we pay to the federal government, and that money's supposed to get redistributed um, to each you know to each school district according to who comes. And some of it goes to Catholic schools because they're still taxpaying citizens. So, how do you see that as um, you know the marriages? we're going to be forced to marry um, same-sex couples or, or have these bathrooms, you know, um, special bathrooms in Catholic schools really happening? Well, historically, the broad, broad assertion of her rights that the church is making here in the Syllabus of Errors has always been subject to nuances reached by negotiation. Okay. We're able to do what we do, but we accept some limits negotiated with the government. Negotiation is the key thing. If the government is willing to treat us as an equal, complete society and negotiate with us about these things, we can probably work out a deal. Mm-hmm. Okay. And... Um, Marriage is uh, one of the areas we get into next week. A bunch of propositions on uh, on civil marriage and ecclesiastical marriage. We'll get to those. In the meantime, um, as long as the state is not going to be in the hands of uh, how to put this delicately, oh, um, ideologues probably get by. It's true. I don't have to, ha- my family doesn't have to have an abortion and we don't have to have a divorce and hey, but the trouble is that once society's law changes, people become blind to the difference between the the legal and the right. Mm-hmm. If it's legal, eh, it's legal time. Well, it isn't right. Now, so far, there has been no attempt to force Catholic clergy to perform homosexual marriages, for example. And knock on wood, it won't come to that. But um, I don't know. Uh, If Hillary had won, I don't know. I don't want to go down that road. Just one follow-up. Do you believe that the separation of of the church and state was always meant to be for the freedom of religion, not, not for the freedom of the government. Correct. And it's, it's backwards now. Correct. The new religion, the new religion. Okay. 
Thank you. All right. Uh, we got a question coming here from Teresa Cotter that I'm going to just bundle up with, um, with a couple of other questions from Kristen and a little point from Ashton. And then I'm just going to let Dr. Marshner, I'm just going to let you go ahead and answer however you like. Okay. Teresa Cotter says, where did all these errors come from? And I don't think she means what you were saying last week about this definition and this document, all that stuff. She's asking a very personal question. Where did all this crap come from? Sorry, but seriously, where did it all come from? And Kristen says, how is it that Catholics have held these opinions? Okay, and I'm going to follow up with a third thing, which came in and says, I've been a cradle Catholic and never been taught these errors, but have certainly absorbed unthinkingly many of these errors as true through Catholic family and friends, as well as from society at large. So many thanks to Dr. Marster for the corrective and enlightening teaching commentary um, and, uh, and so forth. So, so uh, Dr. Marster, I'm just going to put that back out to you. You know, like, I think a lot of you are like, wow, first of all, where did all this stuff come from? And how has that been soaking it in all these years? All right. Where did it all come from? It came from the breakdown of Christian Europe. The breakdown begins with the Reformation, but it doesn't end there. Why not? Because the Protestant churches themselves break down. They break down into uh, various forms of liberalism. And uh, then states, I mean, uh, kings and princes, once they're no longer under the papal thumb, they uh, develop their own ideas about what they can demand and, and so on and so the the end the quick answer to the question is history. The mistakes tacked here come from the history of poor Western Europe from about um, fifteen fifty to eighteen fifty. It is uh, a period in which yeah, there's lots of progress in science and technology, but lots of uh, regress in the understanding of um, church and state and other moral matters of great importance. Okay, how can a person have grown up in America as a Catholic without having heard of any of this? Well, I don't know enough about your diocese, your pastor, uh, your father's diocese, your father's pastors, and so on. But I'm going to mention a very important letter. It has the, it has the title, Testem Benevolentiae, Testimony of Benevolence. It came to the bishops of the United States. It was sent by Pope Leo XIII in 1890, thereabout. Anyway. The letter condemned a policy which had developed in many dioceses in the church in the United States and which uh, came in part from a, a, you know, a good instinct. We are a minority church in a Protestant country, so we don't want to uh, beat people over the head with our most unpalatable doctrines, first off. So we should let that stuff wait. How about church and state and 
married and, and just, you know, stick to Jesus and, and stuff that we have some common ground about. And that will get us a friendly hearing. You can't deny that there's some truth to that. But the policy became never, never, never say anything about the doctrines that the average American wouldn't like for whatever reason, okay? A policy of silence. We're not going to deny any dogmas. No, no, no. We're just going to shut up about them like clams, okay? That was the policy of the American Episcopate for years. And, of course, um, you know, people only hear from the church what she's telling them today. So if some new document is in the news, people hear something about it. But you don't, you can't expect people to hear much about documents 150 years old. It's too bad. We have Catholic schools that should make better outcomes than that. But uh, you know how it is when our public schools produces kids who can't put the Civil War in the right century. Uh, it, it, it's tough. But there was a closed mouth policy in the American Episcopate, got down into the training for school teachers and so on, that basically soft peddled the kind of stuff I've been talking about this weekend, last week. Is Vish. Thank you, Dr. Marshall. One last question coming in from Teresa Cotter and, and, and Susan also. And I think really reading these questions requires a little bit for you to just kind of paint a picture for us. So the two questions are this, how did the bishops give up their political power after Vatican II, which you stated? And then how did the American bishops give up their political power? They seem to deal in politics more than in doctrine. So what would be, what would the use of political power by bishops, what would it look like? And I think that last point is a good, good point. Like, you know, we don't even know when you, when you're talking about the political influence and power of the church in this relationship between church and state, what a bishop uh, doing what he should do in the political sphere, what's it look like from a Catholic perspective? Because we're, we're modern Americans. Yeah. Okay. To get an illustration, we're going to have to go back to the 50s, before Vatican II, when you had powerful men in certain great archdioceses, cardinals, whatever, and they would send out the word to organize the Catholic vote. Suppose some legislator in Albany had introduced a bill to legalize abortion in 1957, okay? What would have happened to that bill? What would have happened to that legislator? Very simple. The yellow buses would have lined up outside every parish on election day, and that SOB would never have been seen in Albany again. That's what we need. That's the exercise of power. You got numbers, you got to use them, okay? It wasn't a matter of, and, and it doesn't violate anybody's constitutional rights. The constitutional right of that jerk to introduce an abortion amendment is the same as our constitutional right 
to stop him from being reelected. No problem there. Other examples uh, also come to mind, but again, they're, they're dated now. Once upon a time, there was something called the Legion of Decency. Uh-huh. It managed uh, to keep certain forms of smut out of the movies. Okay. The Legion of Decency saw to it that what came to the screen in American cinemas was broadly acceptable. At least, well, if you were wise and old and sophisticated, you could see, there's hanky-panky. But an innocent viewer couldn't, wouldn't, wouldn't see it. So people were protected from offenses uh, to their own morals, to their innocence, and so on, by outfits like the Legion of Decency. And at one time, the church's power in Hollywood was huge, huge. That's the kind of thing they gave up because they took the, oh, well, well, we, 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 we can't fight for any distinctively Catholic ideas anymore because uh, we're ecumenical now. Okay? And, and, and we work with all persons of goodwill. Right. It's been a joy as usual to have you with us. Uh, thank you all for joining us. We hope you enjoyed this presentation from the Institute of Catholic Culture. If you'd like to learn more about the mission of the Institute and how you may become a part of this important work, please visit our website at www.instituteofcatholicculture.org or call us at 540-635-7155. And may the glory of Christ Church be ever more manifest upon the earth. St. John the Evangelist, pray for us.